You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. What would you say is the most important thing about you? What's the most important thing about you? Now, if you were to Google that question, which yes, I did this week, um, here's some common answers you might find or hear from your neighbors, the world around you. Your physical health. That's an important thing about you. I read in an article this week um, that, that being physically healthy, this author was saying, is the single most important part of your existence. Another, another answer would be your family. If you'd say, my family is the most important thing about you, about me. Those, those who are with me through thick and thin, because of our, our you know, blood connection, they're always going to be there. You may say friends or, or, or romantic relationships or a, a sense of, of purpose in life. As long as I have this sense of, here's my ultimate purpose, that's the most important thing about me. You may say your career or your mental health or... Your, your education, or maybe it's more basic, things like, do I have enough food? Do I have shelter? Right? Am I getting proper sleep? And so on. And I also recognize we're in a church. So when you hear, hear a pastor ask that question, maybe you thought, well, the most important thing about me is my religious life. It's following Jesus. Now, all of those things, all of them, I think are, are good things, they're important things. Whatever you have in your mind, I'm sure, is probably a, a, a seemingly reasonable answer. But the question is not, are these good things? The question is, are they the most important thing? What is the most important thing about you? Um, a, a man named A.W. Tozier, was, uh, we named one of our kids after him, Aiden's named after uh, Aiden Wilson Tozier. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he answers this question for us. It's the first sentence of the book. And I think he would agree. I think King David would agree with him in Psalm 145. Here's what Tozer says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he goes on to say, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most telling fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. That's Tozer's answer, and I think that's King David's answer in Psalm 145. The most important thing is what comes into our minds when we think about God. Now in this psalm, we're going through the psalms this summer, thematically we've looked at different psalms, this is a psalm of praise, and here what's happening is King David, he's so overwhelmed by the character of God, that's really the theme of this psalm, the character of God, he's so overwhelmed by it as he thinks about it that he just overflows with, with praise. So I think if we had King David here right now and we, we were to say, hey David, maybe we wouldn't be that informal, maybe we'd say, your highness King David, I don't know what we'd say, but if we said, David, what, what's the most important thing about you? He would probably say something like, well, you know, I've written a few hymns about this, and here's one, and he may hand us Psalm 145. 
You see, if you have, here's the logic, if you have a proper understanding of God's character, then you can properly relate to Him. You can worship Him rightly and live for Him. The flip side is true. If you don't have a right understanding, if you're not thinking right thoughts about God, then you won't be able to properly worship Him and live for Him. This is something I think we know intuitively in our our relationships, don't we? Think about how many disagreements you've had in relationships, and please don't point to anyone next to you, right? That you, you would, as you're thinking back on it, you'd, you'd chalk it up to a misunderstanding of the other person, right? It happens often in marriage. It also happens in friendships. Then, the more you get to know that person, the more you understand them, the more your thoughts about them are, are corrected, then the more properly you're able to relate to them, care for them, love them, and vice versa. That's what we're talking about here. In in this psalm, King David is showing us the importance of thinking properly about God's character, thinking high thoughts of God, because here's how we can say this, right thinking about God leads to right living and praise for God. Another simple way, using some, some big words, we could say doctrine leads to doxology. Doctrine teaching about God, thinking about God and who He is. Doctrine leads to doxology, right praise and worship of God. That's what Psalm 145 is teaching us. And the goal is to do this. What David's doing here in this psalm, he's taking our minds, which as sinners in a broken world, we're prone to inward thinking. He's taking our minds and he's elevating our thinking of God. God is much greater than you can imagine. He's much more glorious He's way more good. He's way more gracious than you and I can even comprehend. Now, disclaimer, we will not plumb the depths of this text. Even as Sam was reading it earlier, I'm like, yeah, I can't really talk about that. Can't talk about that. Talk about that. Because I really have 40 minutes, maybe 45, just maybe 30. I don't know. We'll see. But I counted this week 32 descriptions of God in these 21 verses. And I thought for a moment, I thought, how cool would it be to preach a 32-point sermon. And then I thought, no, I, Sam's clapping, no. I thought, no, I love, I love you too much to do that. Then I counted 15 or 16 responses to that praise. So like, let's just make it a 50-point sermon. So that's our challenge this morning is, okay, we have this sort of gushing praise of God's character. How, how do we sum this up this morning? So here's, here's how I want to do this. Um, And here's what I see in the text. There are really four primary characteristics of God that we see here. And we see this time and time again throughout the Scriptures. And each of these descriptions of who God is also has a corresponding application for us. Okay, so here's here's our outline. We're going to work through this psalm this morning if you're taking notes. Here's what we see. First, we see the greatness of God, which means we can surrender control to Him. Second, we see the glory of God, which means we don't have to fear others. Number three, we see the goodness of God, which means we can find our satisfaction in Him. And then number four, we see the grace of God, which means we have nothing to prove. We can rest in Christ. Four G's, greatness, glory, goodness, and grace. And just so you know, some of you who are with us maybe from the beginning, we did a series on Colossians called the four G's. 
And we looked at the greatness, the glory, the goodness, and the grace of God. This is something we've talked about in the life of our church before. It's something we uh, is really helped. Uh, we've been really helped by a book by Tim Chester called "You Can Change," that draws out how we see this not just in one Psalm, but we see it all over Scripture. Okay, so that's how we're going to reflect on God's character this morning. So let's start with number one. What do we see here? First, we see the greatness of God. The greatness of God. Verse 1, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Stop right there. What does extol mean? It means to lift high the name of God. Jake kicked us off with like a, a, a 1990s worship throwback this morning. Lord, I lift your name on high. Right? What does that mean? That's, that's what it means to extol something. It's to lift high the name. So it, pick your favorite sport. What happens when that championship team wins? They take that trophy, whether it's the, you know, the commissioner's trophy, the Stanley Cup, whatever it is, and what do they do? They lift it high. Right? The MVP takes it, lifts it high, passes it on, and then if you're in Boston, what do they do? They fire up those duck boats. Everybody goes downtown, and they parade through town with the trophy, and the players are high and, and lifted up, and the trophy is high and lifted up, and people are, what are they doing? They're extolling this victory. And David says, I am lifting high your name, God. I'm lifting you up for all to see, because your name your, your praise is high above all other names and high above all other praise. You alone are worthy of being extolled, being exalted, being praised. Then he tells us who this God is. He says, he is my God and he is king. He's king. This, this speaks of his sovereign rule over all things. Remember who's writing this. A king is writing this. So David himself knows what it means to be king. It means you have total rule. A king is sovereign over a nation. David could say anything he wanted to happen, and it would happen. We may think on a smaller scale, a, a, a CEO the high, is the highest ranking person in the company. Right? They have the most control, but even they are, are controlled by a board. Right? A commander of an army is the highest ranking, the, the highest commander, right? but even that person is under a higher authority. But here David says, you, God, you outrank all authorities. You are king. You're the king of kings. And notice how personal he makes it. He doesn't just say you're a king. He doesn't just say you're the king, but he says you are my king king. Friends, you and I are not sovereign over our own lives, are we? We're not in control over our lives, ultimately. I'm not the king of my existence. My great God, the king of kings, he is the boss. And, and there's no one like him. And so David starts the psalm by acknowledging the greatness of God's authority his sovereign authority over his life. And he responds in praise. Verse 2, Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Notice that. He says, Every day, meaning here and now, I'll praise you, but also this praise of this great God isn't just for today. It's for every day and it's for forever and ever. It's for all eternity. Because there's only one eternal King. 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. Now he goes on in verse 3, not only is this great God the sovereign king, but also his greatness is unsearchable. Verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Verse 6, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. Now, what does it mean that his greatness is unsearchable? Well, I'm sure, have you ever had the situation where you've encountered something that so stretches your mind, you're like, I need a break, I can't think about that anymore? Yeah, it happens to me very, happens to me very easily with a lot of things. Um, some of you, when you tell me about what you do for a living, I, I, I tune in for about 45 seconds, and then I just go, uh, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Because of, because of your intelligence, you engineers and biologists and all these things. W- one common area this, this, this happens for me is when I think about the cosmos. Hopefully this happens to all of us, right? The vastness of, of space. When I start hearing people much smarter than me tell me things like, hey, did you know that there are at least 100 billion galaxies? I just go, no, I didn't know that, and now my head hurts, right? Or did, did you know that it would, it would take some two million light years to reach the next closest galaxy? And I go, no, I, th- I thought light year was a Pixar character, right? Like, no, 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 did, and, and did you know that one light year is nearly six trillion miles? My brain just taps out. I go, that is, you're talking about something that is unsearchable, to me. We see this all over Scripture, right? Particularly with the created world in the, in the cosmos. Well, friends, when, when David says God's greatness is unsearchable, it's like he's reminding us, hey, listen, the God, the one who created all of that, all of those unsearchable things that sort of bends your brain and hurts your mind, he is behind all of that, Right? Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Not only that, Hebrews 1, 3 says of, of Christ, he upholds all of it. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so the, the logic here is this, if there are created things that are unsearchable and incomprehensible to us, how much more unsearchable, how much more great is the God who created them and is the uncreated one? His greatness is unsearchable. We're meant to be overwhelmed by this thought. Now, one caveat here is some might say, well, okay, if that's true, if, if he's unsearchable, then why try to study him? I think that's actually a really good question. There's a lot of answers to that. I think the simple one is this. Because God has lovingly revealed himself to us, generally in creation, but specifically in his word. He has told us about himself so that we may know and delight in him. Will we be able to plumb the depths of who God is? No, absolutely not. One church father says in the scriptures, there is both shallow waters that a child can play in, but there's also depths that an elephant can swim in. 
point is we're supposed to jump in. We're supposed to engage. Why? Psalm, 1, or Psalm 111, 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. So David's not saying, hey, listen, God's unsearchable, so don't even think about Him. No, no, no. He's saying the opposite. The greatness of God is so unsearchable and vast. Let me invite you in to consider His greatness, to delight in Him. Did you know that you are, everybody in this room, you are a theologian. Did you know that? What's a theologian? It's, it's someone who thinks about God. Now, you may not do that professionally. You may not have gone to, to school or have a seminary degree, but you have thoughts about God. Every single person has thoughts about God. The, the, the question is, how great are your thoughts of God? Is He sovereign King? Or are you the ruler of your own life in your mind? Is, is his greatness unsearchable, leading you to this sort of humble, worshipful pursuit of him? Or do you sort of you know, put him into your own little box and try to conform him into your own image? See, friends, our God is great. And there are so many applications to this in our own life. But here's the primary one I want to consider this morning. The greatness of God means we can surrender control to him. Because he's the great king. His greatness is unsearchable. We, we live in, I don't have to tell you this, we live in an anxiety-ridden world. A few weeks ago in Psalm 42, we talked about depression, which is the, the second most common mental health crisis in the United States. The first is anxiety. Approximately 40 million U.S. adults struggle with this, and that's just a proper diagnosis. That's not to, to count all of the just uh, common anxiety struggles that many of us face. We think, I'm, I'm uncertain about the future. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious about this relationship. I'm, I'm worried about money. I'm concerned for my health or the health of a loved one. I'm, I'm worried about my children, the cost of living, the, the job market, death. Like The list can go on and on and on and on. And in, that, in those moments of anxiety that are so common for us, what if we dwell on this truth that our great God is the sovereign king over all things. None of us can imagine what it means to be in complete and total control over all things. But nothing catches him off guard. He is the king. See, in those moments, we, we have to... This is, it's not the only thing we do when we struggle with anxiety. Please don't mishear me. But this is the first question we have to answer. When, when we're anxious, who is in charge? Who is sovereign right now? What ultimately determines my future? Is it me? Is it my circumstances? Or is it the sovereign Lord who is great? Is it Christ who upholds the universe by the word of his power? Jesus actually addressed this head on in his ministry you think of his whole ministry, he, he, he showed his greatness, he displayed his sovereign rule by, as divine king when he calmed storms just by, by speaking, when he cast out demons, when he shut the mouths of the false teachers, the Pharisees, with his own teaching. He displayed his greatness in those ways, but he also taught specifically on this very thing, that God's, God's greatness and his sovereignty are an antidote for our anxiety. Where did he teach on this? Well, Luke chapter 12, verse
verses 25 through 31. He said this, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. And he says this, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Church, our God is the sovereign great king, which means we can surrender control to him. That's number one, the greatness of God, which means we can surrender control. Moving on, number two, we also see here the glory of God, the glory of God. Verse five says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. Verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Now, what is the glory of God? We actually talked about this back in June when we were looking at, at Psalm, one, or, uh, Psalm 19. And it's really hard to define glory. It's something that's easier to experience, right? You're standing on the edge of a Grand Canyon or a vast ocean and you sort of sense this, this glory, right? We catch glimpses of it in that way. But, but if we're going to put a simple definition around the glory of God, we can define it this way. The glory of God biblically is his perfect character on display. So it's who he is, but then it's displayed to those around him. That's the glory of God. It, it encompasses all of his beauty, his holiness. It's, it's not only that he's glorious, but he's uniquely glorious, which is what makes him so glorious. There's no one like him. He's the only one worthy of praise. Now, what would we say is maybe the, the most common response when we say God is glorious? Well, I think we might say, well, it's to praise him, right? It's to sing to him, or maybe to, to thank him, but when we come to the scriptures, we see a, a, more, a more common initial response to the glory of God. We see a glimpse of it here in verse 19. The, the biblical response when someone's overwhelmed by the glory of God is this word fear. This word fear. Verse 19 says, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Now we use this word differently in our, our day. We think uh, fear, we think of being scared being frightened. Maybe we think of a horror movie, which I don't watch. I don't do horror movies, just as a side note, um, because I'm a scaredy cat, right? So, but the fear of the Lord is something different. It means to respond with a sense of awe and reverence and trembling before the Lord. Because God is not only merciful and gracious, we'll talk about those in a moment, but He is glorious. He is holy. He is holy unlike us. That's why Hebrews 12.9 says, our God is a consuming fire. Right? This is the, the characteristic of God that's not popular to talk about in our day. 
very easy to talk about the love and grace of God, but to talk about the holiness and, and justice and sort of glorious uh, righteousness of God is, is something that's unpopular, but Scripture's clear. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 120, he says, my flesh trembles for fear of you. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 gives us a, a sort of a guidebook on how to approach the Lord in worship. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The right response to the glory of God is fear and trembling, reverential awe as we approach Him, as we consider Him. And again, right thinking about God leads to right response to God. So we respond to the glory of God with fear. Now, we might say, okay, then how is this doctrine of glory and responding in fear, how is this good for us? Well, friends, consider this. The glory and majesty of God means we don't need to fear others, right? If God is our ultimate glory, if we approach Him with this ultimate sense of reverence and awe, then we don't have to be consumed by what others think about us. How often is that true of you? It's very true of me. Consumed by what others think. The glory of God is often eclipsed in my heart by the glory of others. Counselor Ed Welch calls it, uh, people become big and God becomes small in our minds. We could call it people-pleasing or being paralyzed by the, the fear of man. I wonder if that's a struggle of yours. What does that look like? Well, you withhold saying true and hard things to others because you don't want others to think less of you. You're paralyzed by the fear of man. You have a difficult time saying no or setting boundaries with people. And when you do say no, you feel guilty about saying no. You're like, I should have said yes. What are they going to think of me? You're consumed with the glory of others. You had a hard time asking for help because you don't want others to think you're inadequate. Or you pretend to agree with, with people even when you think differently because you don't want them to be your enemy. Right? Many of us are consumed by this people-pleasing, this fear of man. And notice what happens when we walk in the fear of man instead of the fear of the Lord. Not only do we, do we take God's glory and put it off of the, it's out of the picture, we also, we stop loving others well. If you're a people pleaser, and I say this as a recovering people pleaser, you're actually not loving others well. It can look that way. It can look like you're there to serve, but you're actually sort of just using them as a means to an end, to get this sense of, of glory, to find approval in them. Friends, what if you were so overwhelmed by the glory of God and His thoughts of you, if you stood before Him in reverential awe so much that you weren't guided or consumed with what others think, then you'd be free to love God well and to love others well, right? Now, our world would say, well, listen, if you struggle with people-pleasing, fear of man, you need to build up your self-esteem. And David would come along and say, no, 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 
You don't need self-esteem. What you need is a bigger vision of God's glory. So you can understand yourself rightly. And so you can love others well. Here's a great question from the Apostle Paul. I think if you study the Apostle Paul's life, he was likely, we don't have a lot of before Christ stuff from him, but he was likely a people pleaser. He was high, high achiever, really consumed with what others thought, and then after the Holy Spirit works on him, I think God rooted that out in him, and he said, some, he said things like this in Galatians 1.10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What a great assessment question. Write down Galatians 1.10 and pray through it this week. Whose glory am I seeking? Whose approval am I seeking? If I find my full approval in the glory of God, then guess what? I'm going to be freed up to be a servant of Christ and to love those around me. Friends, because God is glorious... We don't need to fear what others think of us. We can rightly fear God above all. Now, number three, there's another reason the sort of the, the fear of the Lord is a good thing. It's because of, it's coupled with the goodness of God. That's number three, the goodness of God. Verse seven says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse nine, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. We don't, we don't tremble uh, before God. When we say fear, we don't tremble before him as if he's this mean-spirited, capricious God. He's not like Zeus. You know, when he gets mad, Zeus throws lightning bolts down. Zeus isn't real, but that's sort of the picture there. This, this God that we've made in our image who throws temper tantrums. No, because God is not only great and glorious, he is also good. We worship a God who is good and righteous. So to, to say that God is good means that he does no evil. His, his moral character is completely righteous. He's incapable of sin. It's closely related. The goodness of God is closely related to his justice. He punishes evil and he holds those accountable for injustice because he is a good and just God. He doesn't sweep those things under the rug. And this goodness means that we, and the psalm emphasizes this, we can find our ultimate satisfaction in Him. Look at verse 16. It shows us that He extends goodness to all for the common good. It says, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Not just His children, but God provides all. Scriptures say He makes the, the, the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Then in verse 19, he shows us that this is also, there's an ex, a special extension of his goodness. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, those who worship him rightly. Now, the way we primarily talk about goodness seems to relate to pleasure, right? We say, oh man, that was a really good meal. Or, you know, those, those, uh, that movie was, was so good, you have to see it. Or we might ask a friend, hey, do you have any, do you have any good book recommendations for me or any good, good bands to listen to? things like that. We're talking about an experience of pleasure. And when we use that word, we're referring to a level of satisfaction. I think that's good. I think that's right. As creatures made in God's image, when we talk about good things, we're saying, when I experience this level of satisfaction, it's a good thing. You see, the goodness of God means that that pursuit of satisfaction 
doesn't have to go elsewhere because we find it ultimately in him, right? After all, look at, look at verse 7. It says, his goodness is abundant. It never runs out. Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the longing soul. You see, our, our problem is not that we search for satisfaction. That's not the problem. We were created to do that. Our problem is that we, we look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And we, we tend to take good things and twist them into God things and find out that we are left wanting. Money can be a good gift, but it is not the ultimate good. It will not satisfy you. Success, status can be a good thing, but it will not ultimately satisfy you. It's not the ultimate good. Sex, relationships, children, entertainment, earthly pleasures, right? So on and so on. These things can be, can be rightly enjoyed, but the ultimate good, the ultimate satisfaction is the source of those things. It's God himself. It's the giver, not the gifts. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote about this. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. Listen to this illustration he gives. He says, these are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Hear what Edwards is saying here? He's saying, don't try to find your ultimate satisfaction in the beams of light. Trace the beams back to the source, the sun. I was talking to um, one of the teenagers, one of our teenagers this week. We listen to all sorts of music, and we try to equip the, the older kids to listen critically what is being said here. We want to listen to things that glorify God, that aren't glorifying sin, but also, what's the message here? And I was talking to one of the, one of the kids this week, and they were saying, you know, all the songs I listen to, are, 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 they seem to have this search for satisfaction. And of course, I'm a, a Christian dad, and my kid's saying this, and I'm like, yes, I love where this conversation's going. I'm like, tell me more. You know, and one song is like, I'm trying to find satisfaction in this relationship, or I'm trying to find satisfaction in, in fame or, or money, and then it seems great and joyous, and then the very next song is, my life is a wreck and nothing satisfies. And I'm like, well, what do you think about that? Well, I, th I think they're missing that the ultimate satisfaction is a conversation we had about Psalm 145. The ultimate satisfaction is found in God. And, and we are constantly trying to find the satisfaction, not in a good God, but in his good gifts. And guess what? Created things don't last. So the joy and satisfaction that they bring doesn't last either. So because God is good, church, we can find our ultimate satisfaction in him and in his goodness. And then third and finally, we see the grace of God. So we have the greatness of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, and the grace of God. What is grace? We talked about this in Psalm 67. It's God's unmerited favor upon us. 
His mercy is His withholding of punishment. His grace is His unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. And His love is His affectionate care of His people. And here in verses 8 and 9 of the psalm, David quotes Exodus 34, 6. And it's God's most famous self-declaration in the Bible. And David quotes it this way. He says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's loving. Now, we have to go back a little bit here. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you, even though we'll have it on the screen, if you're looking at the Scripture, turn back to Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Because we have to understand what David had in mind when this happened. He's citing the most, uh, the most referenced Old Testament scripture in all of the Old Testament. And so the people reading Psalm 145, and David would have had this picture in mind. In Exodus 33, Moses has just pleaded for God to be gracious to uh, the people who have committed idolatry. God was saying, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to continue on with you. Moses pleads with God. He stays with him. And then Moses makes this request to see God. He wants to see the glory of God. And so Exodus 33, we'll pick up in in verse 18. It says this, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness, God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Then jump down to Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And here's what David quotes. The Lord uh, passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now, what's happening here? Moses, who Scripture describes as a friend of God, he asks to see the glory of God. He knows God is great, he knows God is glorious, and he knows he's good, and he says, I want to see God face to face. I've only heard him, there's been cloud, we've been on the mountain, I haven't seen God. God, show me your glory. And God says, Moses, you can't see my glory, because you're a mere man. You are of sinful nature, you are a created thing. And there is, because of sin, there's a separation between you and me. And if you see the fullness of my glory, you will die. It will incinerate you. So God tells Moses, you can hide in this hole in the rock. I'll pass by, but I'll, I'll cover you. And you can sort of see the afterglow of my glory. And he, he passes by, and he, God makes that verbal declaration. 
And Moses sort of sees that, you know, the afterglow of the glory of God, and he hears God speaks a word of this declaration of grace, mercy, and love. Well, friends, why, why is this so important? Because it shows us that there is still a rift between a God who is great and glorious and good and us as sinful man. You see that? Even Moses, one of, the, one of the greatest followers of God who has ever lived, could not see God's glory and lived. God knows that sinful people like Moses, like you and me, like David, we need something else. What do we need to intervene so that we can engage the presence of God? We need grace. We need His grace. The reason Exodus 34, 6 is the most frequently repeated verse in the Hebrew Scriptures is because it's this needed reminder that the grace God's people need to be restored to right relationship with Him is going to come from God. It came from God in the past when He delivered them from Egypt. It comes from God today in the present, and it will come from God in the future. And as we follow that, that line, trace that all throughout the Old Testament, we see that it finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where is God most gracious? It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. How does John begin his gospel? John 1.14 tells us that Jesus came and he's full of what? Grace and truth. Romans 5.17 tells us that God has given us abundant provision of grace in Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus Christ, Exodus 34.6, Psalm 145.8 and 9 are fulfilled. In Jesus Christ, we who are sinners are treated better than we deserve. That's what grace is. Rather than you and I suffering for our sin, what did Christ do? He suffered on the cross in our place. He defeated sin and death when He rose from the grave. And in Him, Ephesians 1.7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Friends, what does this mean? What does the grace of God mean for us? It means we have nothing to prove. We might hear, listen, our thoughts of God need to be greater. We need to consider God as more holy than we do. We may hear about God's greatness and His glory and His goodness and say, oh man, the temptation might be, you know what, I need to do better. I need to be a better theologian. I need to, I need to, to clean my life up as I consider this great God. But the grace of God says, no, 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 no. God has come to you in Jesus Christ. He has paid the debt. Look to him, trust in him, rest in Christ, and receive the gift of grace. So Tozer said, if you remember at the beginning, he said the most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. But I would add, not that I disagree, I would add something. Equally important is not just what we think about God, but what does God think about us? And what does grace do? It answers that question. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It's written that we shall stand before him, appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible 
and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. So how does that happen? It happens through grace. Those who receive His grace by faith. What does Psalm 145 tell us? It tells us that He is gracious towards us, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithful, kind. He'll uphold you when you fall. He'll be near when you call. He'll save you. He'll preserve you to the end, defeat all of your enemies, and welcome you into his open arms. Not because of anything you and I have done, but solely because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So friends, you and I, in Christ, we have nothing to earn and nothing to prove. So let's receive his grace today. As we consider the the greatness of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, and the grace of God, may we be overwhelmed at what Christ has done for us, that we can know these things and rightly respond in praise.